So, we're really excited to have this wonderful, rich um, panel this afternoon. Uh, I want to introduce everyone, but because of time, I'm going to just sort of let them um, do their thing and just sort of talk about themselves a bit and then um, go into a wonderful discussion that will be led by Dr. Melissa Leal. Um, and so with that, let's begin. Thank you. Melissa Leal, Good day. My name is Melissa Leal. Um, I am Ohlonean Eslin, an enrolled member in the Ohlone Kosono and Eslin Nation from the greater Monterey Bay region. I was born and raised right here in Sacramento, um, pretty much adopted into some Miwok families um, from this area. And so I acknowledged the Miwok and Nisanon people of this land that we are currently sitting on. And I also said, my heart and my soul feels good to be here with you today. Um, yeah, so let's introduce ourselves. Do you guys ever watch the behind the scenes of movies? I think our behind the scenes might be a little more entertaining. <laughs> we were cracking each other up. <laughs> anyway, so I'm gonna go ahead and start with Dana. Hi, um, my name is Dana Barrios. I'm Ventron in Yoshimash, and I'm the Youth Initiatives Director at SNAC. Um, prior to that, I was a victim advocate at Weave, who specifically worked with uh, Native um, people who are survivors of domestic violence, uh, sexual assault, and sex trafficking. Um, <clears throat> I have my master's degree in sociocultural anthropology from Sacramento State. Uh, props to Terry Castaneda. I know she's here. Yes. Um, my thesis was actually on tribal disenrollment and how it's a violation of human and civil rights. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Go ahead, Julie. I, I okay. I'm with boy of Julie Lang. Hello. I want to cut which means uh, from up the river. So I'm an up the river Indian. Hello. I've been around long enough to know most of most of you who are older, and been been around enough to know many of you who are younger. So uh, happy to uh, probably I knew you when you were kids. Uh, but I'm a kind of tribe tribal member, uh, member of a tribe, a descendant of slaves, as I like to say. My grandmother's grandmother had been kidnapped from the Humboldt Bay region and taken up into the mountains where we became Karuk people uh, by marriage and all of that, marrying in. And, and so it's kind of a long story. And uh, I've uh, recently become the, uh, ch the chairman of the Karuk Language Committee and member of the in Advocates for Indigenous uh, California Indian Language Survival and uh, <coughs> formerly uh, chairman for many years of, for a local arts organization in Humboldt County called um, the, Art, the Ink People Center for the Arts. And so I come here um, with kind of, in a way, many hats or multiple heads. However you look at it. So. Thank you. And Jamie. We met. Yes. <laughs> awesome. So the rest of my bio is in the program. You guys can read that. But basically, I'm a dancer. I make films. Um, my dissertation from UC Davis was on native hip hop. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from, um, from artistic space. I served under Haleya Sinajini. 
at UC Davis. Um, but today, you know, visual sovereignty, it was a, coin, a term coined by Jolene Rickard, and then later Michelle Rahasia, and then Halia was really awesome in taking it to a different level with photographic sovereignty. And so my inspiration for getting into more of an artistic academic um, field was based off of um, a photographer's conference that um, UC Davis and Halia uh, hosted in 2009, I believe. Yeah, so it really inspired me, and so I've gone this way into film and photography, and um, including my dance and music to really get to this <coughs> space. Um, so, uh, my first question, I'm going off the script <laughs> for Jamie, oh. is, are you supposed to wear your shoes? <laughs> the first pair I made was, that was the that was what they're made for. Yeah. And it just, they had an impact within the native art world that I wasn't expecting um, with them. And so, yeah, not a single pair have been worn on any feet. Dang. I don't even have a pair. Wow. <laughs> I know some people that would look amazing in those shoes. <laughs> a couple of them are in the audience. <laughs> Thank you. I was, that was my curiosity. Oh, yeah. So, this question is for everybody. Um, in what ways do you see art as a means of offering healing to the Native American community? Um, you want to start, yeah. Julian? Okay, yeah. well, I can start. Uh, it, it was, you know, we almost have to deconstruct this, the question because uh, <laughs> it, it's kind of, it's odd, like in the sense that uh, Native American community, I, it's like such a, mm -hmm. a big, huge monster of a, of a of a definition. So in my community, uh, I see art as a very uh, important part um, of the healing process because art tends to grapple with truth and the ideas of, uh, of a lie, I guess, in, in, and in response to lies that we've had to live with forever. So uh, we tend to, uh, as artists, and I'm talking about every, uh, art is a form of truth-telling, and, uh, and it could be propaganda in the, in the wrong hands. But uh, it's, uh, it's a form of truth-telling, so the truth never hurts. You know, lies hurt, and truth doesn't. So art heals in, in it because it deals with the truth. So. I guess, yes. Yeah, thank you. Um, for me, I think art um, has the capacity to heal in numerous different ways. So a lot of what I do at the Sacramento Native American Health Center is working with youth and the Native community here. And I agree that term Native community is <laughs> extremely broad. And in fact, I think there's multiple communities, um, not just one community. Uh, but here in Sacramento County, um, we work a lot with uh, different members of the Native community here, and I think it's important to recognize as well that Sacramento is a relocation site, um, right? So you have Native populations and Native peoples from all over the country who were relocated to big city centers. So in Sacramento, you have different types of Native people from different lands and different places, um, many of which or some of which, I should say, aren't really familiar with their histories and their tribal communities because they're so far away and they're oftentimes removed from their culture. So we have a class that we call Culture is Prevention 
and Julie Fuentes is here and she really kind of spearheads that and that's essentially bringing culture and art together um, as a way of healing, as a way of reconnecting um, and being with your community. Whereas many times some people didn't feel like they had a community. And so it's allowing that space of healing and gathering um, that heals the mind, body, and spirit together. Thank you. What do you think, Jamie? How is um, art a means of offering healing to the community? I, I, that's beyond my pay grade. I, hey. I don't look at it. <laughs> I, I guess as an artist, I don't, I don't look at it that way. I'm right. too in my own head working on pieces, and I guess I, it for myself, it grounds me and it makes me feel good. Right. And even when I'm feeling bad or anything, that it heals me. But as a broader, I, I can't go there. I, I don't know. I can't speak for other people. There's so, like you said, there's so many different facets of that. I, right. Yeah. But it makes me feel good, too. <laughs> Yay. Well, good. Good. Right? So I think you answered it perfectly. And it, it's that the act of doing the art is healing for mm -hmm. those individual artists. Mm -hmm. And then they share that with the community. And that heals them and makes them feel good. Mm -hmm. Right? Absolutely. Um, so... Our next question is, when did art become something important to you? And so I'm going to go ahead and start that question off. Um, I was a young girl. Um, I grew up in a really poor, poor, poor family um, on a ranch. <laughs> and my father was an alcoholic, and my mother was severely depressed most of her life. And it was just what saved my life is going into my room, shutting the door, turning on music, learning songs, and dancing. And I knew that whatever else, what other, you know, whatever other traumas were going to happen in my life, and there were lots of them, that I could do that each time. And so that's how art, you know, was introduced to me as a form of healing in my own way. So when did it become really important to each of you in your lives? For me, it was, yeah, seeing it, I was born into it. I don't know anything different. Just a long line of artists in my family. And so it was just natural. It was never forced on me. In fact, like, people would tell me, oh, you're, she's the one, she's going to be an artist. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. That's... <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it was it was always there, and my mom was really cool. Both of my parents, they, my dad being Okinawan, Japanese, they're very educated oriented. And it's always, you know, you're gonna go to school, you're gonna, and I did not want to, I hated school. I did not want to walk in my high school graduation. I am an art school dropout. So yeah, it was not my thing, and they were so cool. I did, I did attend IAIA for a year um, when I was, I think, 20, in my early 20s. And they never forced anything on that. They, if you ask them, they, my mom has been asked, you know, how did, they just, they knew what I was going to be doing and let me do my thing. And I'm so thankful for that because um, I just would have wasted a whole ton of money in college, <laughs> if that made me go. What about you, Julian? So, um, again, uh, 
I guess the, the answer is, you know, you're born somewhat like as an artist, I guess, and uh, you grow. Uh, but it didn't really have a lot of meaning until I was uh, took. I studied mime for quite a few years, and that was uh, an important. Uh, period because the teacher was this uh, really chauvinistic uh, uh, Italian. And, um, and so it was like, you know, and he used to love to make the girls cry in the class. And, and I always, often found myself standing up and telling him he was a chauvinistic pig. And, uh, but one thing that he, beyond his personal personality, his personality, he also talked about art as being the highest form of human expression. Mm -hmm. And I'd never heard anybody say that before. I, I'd never heard that. I, I did, I, that was not something that I had ever thought about. But I realized that was, you know, me standing up against him, that was kind of in a way what that art, uh, I guess, power of art is to change you as a person to change, you know, this group of people or to change your community and all of that. Art is a big thing. It's huge. It's way, like I, I like to say, it's bigger than the internet, you know. It's so huge and the internet's pretty damn big. <laughs> so it's, art is a big thing and so uh, we're engaged in work that we don't even understand, you know, the end, the end you know, the, how it's received. It's we do it, like you say, we're doing it alone. You know, things, we're inspired by something and then it's, we create something and we send it out. And we don't have time to follow it and, you know, massage it <laughs> along. Like, we're not raising children and sending them out. I mean, we're just basically having kids and, and giving them <laughs> to the world. You know? Just give them birth and Yeah, go. give them birth and go. Yeah, but we have, we're, our, our job is is making babies, like you know, making those babies. So that's what we like to do. This is an amazing like, panel, by the way. <laughs> I lied. This is more entertaining than the behind. <laughs> but everybody says that. Yeah. Know, like fun, yeah. fun making babies. <laughs> the one man on the panel. <laughs> Do you want to answer that question, Dana? Sure, sure. Um, I don't have children, but there you go. Um, but for me, uh, I kind of have a similar story as you, Melissa. I never thought of myself as an artist, but growing up, I you know lived in Ventura and I was a rapper kid. I, for me, it was um, writing rhymes in my room and memorizing songs and teaching myself how to rap and using rap as a way of expressing my dismay with society. <laughs> and I was angry and I was mad and I wanted everybody to know I was angry and mad. So what better way than to write and rap and just go and be on stage and tell everybody how pissed off you are essentially. So it was actually a great medium for expression for me. But not once did I ever consider myself an artist through that. Um, to me, I considered myself just a a rebel rousing kid, you know? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. 
Um, I think, Julian, you said that your teacher said art is the highest form of human expression, yeah. right? And for most of us, um, our traditional languages, our indigenous languages, we don't really have words for art, like 90% of us. And so it's because everything that we made, everything that we created had a spiritual or useful purpose, right? It wasn't just to be looked at and to be pretty. And I think Anasita even mentioned how, you know, the jewelry that we wear, like it, it's beautiful, Right, but it wasn't made to be beautiful, it was made to protect us, right, and to um, heal us and different things like that. So how do you think this has changed or has it not changed in terms of indigenous art? Um, are we now creating art just for beauty, for people to admire, or are we still creating useful art only? Jamie. <laughs> well, yeah, technically, mine are all, it's all useful. I, I, I like the fact that it can be used. It's something so cool and special. You can, it's functional. I mean, I do have the finer art where it's just made to be looked at, but it, they do tell stories. Um, but yeah, I like functional art. Yeah. 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 So I think we're still doing kind of the same mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. I, and I think if we look at fashion, mm -hmm. so I just did a series on um, Bethany Yellowtail, the fashion designer. Now you, you guys have collaborated before. And whenever I sh do the showing, I always talk about Jamie first. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd show the Bethany Yellowtail, like represent California. <laughs> but both of you are amazing. And I think um, now there's native indigenous art that other people can can buy and wear, and it's appropriate, right? And it's um, an homage to the story that that piece has. So I definitely would agree with you in that it's all useful, it yeah. all has a purpose, yeah. but it's also very creative and beautiful. Yeah, for, and for speaking for myself, and what I do is on the fashion side, it's for everybody. Yeah. I love that indigenous people are, are um, a huge, um, customer base, but it is for everybody. The, and, the, and the reason behind that for me is I was really tired, and it still happens. Um, major labels are putting out the native-inspired collections, and half the time it's so bad. I'm like, no, you can, if you like it, there's, we're here for you. We're, there's yeah. real stuff that you can have. It is, I don't care who you are, what ethnicity you are. If you appreciate native art, I'm here for that. Yeah. What do you think, Julian? Um, say, ask me the question. Okay, I know I was gonna ask you. <laughs> Just basically, do you think art um, by indigenous or Native American artists today um, is seen as more of an aesthetic art, or is it still something that is useful, spiritual, um, mm -hmm. or both? Well, I think that, um, well, then maybe traditional versus contemporary mm -hmm. versus something else. I don't know what that could be, but <laughs> like, uh, Porty, uh, Porty Blake has made all of these. Uh, incredible things that are used in ceremonies today. I mean, and they, you know, I don't know that he made them as art pieces, um, but they were, they're recognized as, as, as high, as high art. And they're with, 
out the community and then within the community, you know, it's an important part of our ceremonial life. So it's super important. On the other hand, the aesthetic, I think this country is totally ridiculous in many, <laughs> so many ways. So, I mean, they just rip a, rip. I mean, look at the guy who's, you know, I don't want to start Trump bashing, but. We can, you know, we can, we can totally. I know, but it's like, you know, I mean, we've dealt with JIPO operations all of our lives. Indian people, we've had, you know, all these operations come in and just rip the mm -hmm. hell off. All, everything, take everything and then leave, and then come and then come back, and then the the uh, the the good people have sent in another bunch of people to come in and rip us off even more. It's amazing we have anything, you know. Yeah. And my, um, you know, I just feel like, uh, um, you know, it's. Uh, I think you've got it right, and I overheard a, a little story uh, on uh, out in the the area out here. The, tables and the, uh, they were talking about it's something I've thought about it's like all of this designer yeah. um, fetish it's like an addiction to yeah. designer this is and that. Uh, that especially with young people and I think back to you know the good old days <laughs> and uh, you know and, and they would say well you know that's a great music you know oh yeah they're they're making lots of money and uh, but the, the real question uh, this, you know, I guess he would be considered like the cultural leader of the day. You know, I said, well, but is he saying anything or mm -hmm. is she saying anything? Mm -hmm. I mean, is she contributing to humanity in any kind of way or is it just a ripoff? Because I think our society is a ripoff society. We have no, mm -hmm. we have no compunction to rip off our neighbor if it's going to benefit us. And we'll say, we're sorry, but it was like only business. It's like, you know, the American way to do. And I think that we just need to kind of overcome that, maybe, you know, assert ourselves. You know, I don't know, I don't know what that means, building our own customer base to rip off or to our own. It's capitalism, you know, sir. It's capitalism. Yeah, so if like, there's know, only capitalism. a capitalistic <laughs> path open to us, or is it the community building, you know, that yeah. we that we need to be engaged in? And that's I think where most of the artists that are here, if not all, are into their communities in some, mm -hmm. in some form. Even if you are like I am, I mean, we can go weeks without seeing anybody. Yeah. You know, if we don't have to see anybody. We're still going to make art as far as that goes. <laughs> yeah. Long answer, sorry. <laughs> it's a great answer. It is a great answer. <laughs> um, so Dana, you get the next one. <laughs> Can you talk about what visual sovereignty means to you and how creative expression helps you and your community, and I'll say the Sacramento mm -hmm. community yes, that you work yeah. with, um, thrive in a world where you know, Native people are still marginalized, still threatened, mm -hmm. still not acknowledged? So a lot of the work I do, you know, I, I don't consider myself an artist, but I consider myself a community activist. That's kind of a loaded term within itself, too. Um, but for me, I think um, visual sovereignty is we're still here, right? I think I go out and I do, I go to state boards and I go and I sit at all these fancy tables and these panels and a lot of people don't realize that Native people are still here. Um, and so we're oftentimes marginalized, right? We're oftentimes an afterthought if we're a thought at all. 
Um, we look at suicide rates, we look at mental health rates of Native youth, and they are horrible. They're, it's absolutely horrible. So for Native people, being able to come together in a space where we're not judged, right? I mean, I'm not going to sit up here and talk about how there's no lateral oppression in Indian country, right? Because there is. So for Native people to be able to come to a space and not be judged on the color of your skin, not be judged on the federal recognition status of your tribe, um, not be judged by your class or your access to art or materials um, is a beautiful thing. And I think that it's reconnecting people and allowing people to re-remember what their traditions were. And if they don't know what their traditions are, we have speakers come in and they help teach what their traditions are. Right, so we, we teach them how to make drums, even if drumming may not have been traditional to them. You know, we teach them those things, we teach them songs. And to me, that is, it's phenomenal and it's beautiful and it's, it's growing culture in a way that, that I am really lucky to be a part of. And to me, that is, that is Native people taking it back, you know? Like, to me, that's Native people standing up and saying, you know what, I, I'm going to pray and I'm going to do these, I'm going to sing these songs and do these traditions and um, I'm not going to let anybody stop me. And it's, so I'm, I'm honored to be a part of that. So I don't know if that answered your question, but. I don't remember. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. It did, it did, definitely. And that's what I wanted you to get into because I know you work a lot with the youth mm -hmm. and so yeah. it's important to see the impact yeah. that um, these artistic expressions have on our young people here Absolutely. in this area. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, we talk a lot about maintaining culture, language, preservation, all of these different things, um, but the talk is about healing, right? So let's get back to healing and see how do we reassert this sovereignty um, because it allows for our creative and cultural growth, mm -hmm. right? So um, I guess the question is, how we, we can learn from our past, do we also see art as a means of continuing to move forward and to demonstrate how native culture is not a historical relic, but something alive and thriving? So I teach anthropology. I'm the worst anthropology teacher in the world <laughs> because I teach anti-anthropology. <laughs> I'm an anthropologist, and I'm an anti-anthropologist. <laughs> okay. I guess I'm an anthropologist. Anyways, so it's really hard for me because I always want to bring all this contemporary stuff to my classroom, right, and um, invite people to do stuff with my students, which is amazing, right? That's what we should do. But all of my students are like, um, yeah, but we want to know about, you know, the the society setup of the Karuk tribe and traditional. I'm like, well, I can tell you how it is now. <laughs> so what, what are, you know, what is our goal in maintaining, preserving, but also moving forward with he the healing arts, with native art, with uh, Karuk, Luceno, well, Chumash can, art, you know? I know with, uh, with the Karuk people, you know, where we are a, um, the second largest tribe in the state, mm -hmm. for instance, we don't have a language program per se, uh, but we have a, finally uh, the tribal council responded and said, well, why don't you, we set up a, we'll set up this kind of language committee and see where that goes because programming from the tribe and, and <coughs> culture, there's just not enough vision, uh, I guess, length of vision uh, to uh, create 
healthy programs. We can only think within a one-year, two-year pro programmatic life. And, uh, and our language is forever. Uh, one of the words that you'll see down there is hitiha, which means forever. But forever and ever, it doesn't mean like forever, ever. It means forever, ever. You know? <laughs> forever, ever. Yeah, yeah, forever, ever, ever, ever. <laughs> yeah, and so, uh, and I think that language is the gateway to health. Um, I really feel that um, uh, once you enter language, because it's such, uh, we are concrete people. We're not really... <laughs> We're not really um, abstract about a lot of stuff. Everything is very concrete. A person said that uh, the Bible, what well, the, the elder said about the Bible, they said, well, if you read the Bible, it really is about nothing. I mean, it's not about, it's <laughs> not about anything. It's, you know, but our stories are about yeah. this place, the reality. You know, so you have the rock that is in our stories. Our our creation and our like sacred stories talk about this place and about this stream and about that tree or that grove and all of that. Whereas the Bible tells you about something called the afterlife, something that doesn't even exist. Yeah. It's not connected to the present and to us. So it's a, our language is our is our gateway, mm -hmm. you know. And we've been it's been uh, locked, uh, mm -hmm. locked we've been locked out of this place. Mm -hmm. So once you start learning that first word, maybe it's Hittihan, it'll be your first word. Everybody say, Hittihan. Hittihan. Yeah, forever. So then you open the door, it's like, okay, forever. Yeah. And you have it. Now you have it, so there you are. You're, you're, you're now there. And you'll be able to, every, the next word might be, you know, Ishkesh. The river, we talk about that, you know. Adar, the people, everything's real. They're, you're not going to find unreal things in there. Yeah. Like things made up, they don't exist. You know, our, our wisdom is what we don't get. get. I, I always say that all these empty seats here that we see, those are all the people that, that those are the people who sp spoke our language. Mm. And they're not here. Mm -hmm. So it's us. Yeah. I'm a big language person also, and mm -hmm. it was interesting to me for you to say, we don't really have a language program, but I'm over yeah. here like an Esalen person, like looking mm -hmm. up to Karuk people. Right, yeah. <laughs> and oh, yeah. people from up there, because they, to me, they have lots and well, lots I, of language. But I think we have a lot of language, but I think that the thing is, we just lost two speakers. Mm -hmm. You know, so we just lost two speakers within the last three or four weeks. Yeah. And so, okay, so now we're down to two or three speakers. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what I mean, that whole idea of like, we're at the end of, you know, these old timers are going and it's a sad day. But, you know, then we'll have a funeral for them. But we are the new day. So let's just act that way, you know. Let's just assume our job. We're supposed to learn our language. We're supposed to speak our language with each other. We're not supposed to study the language and learn, oh, that's how you conjugate a verb. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. We're supposed to communicate and talk with each other. That's what, that, that's what our, the wisdom of our elders is, is that when we talk to each other, we, we can't tell a lie. We, we have to tell the truth 
the Pomo language has a little, there's a Southern Pomo, or I think it's Southern Pomo, um, or Eastern Pomo. They have a little, little, little wordlet that they have to insert into their sentence to say whether they're telling the truth, it's first-hand knowledge, or whether it's hearsay. Wow. So you can't lie. Right. And all of our tribes are full of these little markers. Yeah. They're, they're, they're little truth markers that yeah. force us to tell the truth. It might be bring shame on your, yourself. It might be hurtful to you personally, but you know, that little markers mm -hmm. there it goes, it's up there. You gotta put that in the sentence. Yeah. You, is it the truth or not? <laughs> so in Eslin, we have that, the word alpha, it means to speak, but it also means to pray. And so, you know, you're not going to pray a bunch of mean nonsense and lies, right, when you're right. talking to creator, yeah, to yeah. the spirit world. So it's the same kind of concept of um, when you're speaking, you're telling the truth and you're saying things that are going to bring about balance in the world and not negativity, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Awe mitano means forever. Forever, For okay, yeah. Okay. So Jamie, you work with a very traditional beading technique. <laughs> Can you talk about why that's important to you to maintain that traditional skill? Um, it's just, I wouldn't say it's something that I um, focus on or I, uh, it's just, it's me. This is what I do. So it's important. It's a sense of that's just part of who I am. Um, I don't think broadly about, uh, I think, where that question is going. I'm, I like to say that I'm a very, I'm a very selfish artist. I do things for me and what I like. And I've been so fortunate that that has translated mm -hmm. into the broader art world. But ultimately, anything is, I just think about how it impacts myself or my family. Mm -hmm. um, other, beyond that, it's just too, too much for me to um, think about or consider. Mm -hmm. There's just, yeah, I just I just focus on that that kind of stuff for myself and my family. Yeah. yeah. Is there anybody in your family, like a young person, that you may have taught? This? No. No. Mm -mm. Wow. no, because beating for one, it's a it's a northern yeah. northern thing, uh, and so being in Southern California, our thing is baskets. Yeah. And <laughs> so I've I've had my hand at that, and it's just oh my God, it's so much work. <laughs> It's so much work, and like you can only gather at certain times of the year and certain dyes. I can't. No, I want to. I, I want to order my beads, and I want to. <laughs> I want to work. Get down to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Thank you. So Dana, kind of the same question that I just asked um, Jamie. Uh, why don't you maybe one of the projects that your youth have done at the yeah. Sacramento Native American Health Center that you're really proud of? So one of the things that we did is I think when we look at space and place, especially in urban environments, um, <coughs> there is a large lack of native and indigenous representation in these spaces. 
um, especially in areas like Sacramento where you can often feel like you're surrounded by a concrete jungle, right? Um, and it can be very hard to kind of walk in those two worlds sometimes. And we, you know, for our youth, they really talk about walking in those two worlds and what that means to them. And they're very open. Um, and so one of the things that we wanted to do is for us, and not just us, but it's, a, it's something that's becoming an evidence-based practice, which is culture is prevention, right? So how do we use culture as a form of prevention against suicide? Uh, how do we use culture as a form of prevention against mental illness or, or in, in healing that? How do we use culture to prevent against domestic violence, sexual assault, missing murder, indigenous women? How do we use our culture to get back and to really heal our people? And for youth, it was one of the things that they talked about was art, was using art as a way to express themselves and express them how they walk in these two worlds. So here in Sacramento, we have something called Wide Open Walls, um, which is, for me, is a problematic <laughs> um, thing. I think it's, um, art can oftentimes be linked with capitalism in a way that I think shuts out a lot of voices. Um, but for us, we worked with Wide Open Walls um, to elevate the native voice. And it was done on our terms, where we wanted it to be. We hired a native artist, so they didn't pair us with just some random artist. We talked with Carl Avery, a Euro rock artist, and um, we brought him down and he talked with our youth. He sat there and said, hey, what do you guys want us to do? Or what do you want me to do? And they said, we want you to show what it means to walk in two worlds as a youth in Sacramento. Um, so you have this beautiful mural. It's on, it's like the power and substation wall. It's this huge wall. Uh, I don't know exactly where it is because yeah, but there's somewhere. If you Google it, you'll, you'll find it. Yeah, SMUD, <laughs> substation, you'll find it. It's in, and the other thing is it's in um, East Sac, which is, you know, it's there's not. 34th Street. Yes, and thank you. Uh, You're the best. That's, that's a nice yeah, thank you. So anyway, um, but yeah, so we, we commissioned uh, Carl Avery, and he worked with Wide Open Walls and worked with our youth, and the mural is, uh, the two worlds that the youth live in. So the one world is modern world, right? Where they love basketball, they love music, um, they love hanging out with each other, and they don't want to be in tradition all the time, right? They don't want to be in ceremony all the time. They're like, we're kids too, you know? Um, but the other side is based off um, Miwok tradition. Um, so you have Miwok traditional pieces and symbols that are also incorporated into the mural. And for youth, it's, hey, that's me. We're represented in a space that traditionally, or not traditionally, um, modernly does not look at us and does not recognize our existence. But here we are forcing our existence onto this space. And it's empowering and it's beautiful to see. Every day I drive home and I think about how important it is because I cross the freeway because it's right by the railroad. And I think about how cool it would be for me to be a native youth. You know, I drove down the street and saw Father Sarah. You know, how cool would it be for me to drive down the street and to see myself on that wall, right? To see a representation of me um, instead of a representation of colonization and, and settler society. Thank you. Mm -hmm. well, I um, think bringing yeah. kids into museums is really, and into the art experience, you know, I think it's inspiring to go into a museum. I mean, I, most kids would say, a museum, uh, no thanks, I'll pass. <laughs> but, um, but you bring them in and there's always that one kid that's like really super inspired. I was thinking, I see Janine over here that uh, I did this one um, installation and it's no longer, it's a defunct 
place now of the Cap Street project. And so I did this, this um, exhibit and we brought in for the first time into that space all these Indian kids from all over, mm -hmm. all over the place. And I remember this one little boy, uh, it was a sound of um, uh, thunder. Mm. So it was like you could hear a thunderstorm off in the distance. And, uh, uh, and I said, so everybody, be quiet. What is that? What do you hear? And that one little voice said, air. And I thought, <laughs> air, it's like, really? wow, that's amazing. and he meant outdoors, he meant like, he could feel, he could feel like, in a way, life, like breathing and this, it was just like such a great experience. So he wasn't able to define it, but it really <laughs> defined him in a sense. The art kind of went into him and became. And I don't know, I t had to share that story because it was like so yeah. moving for me personally. Well, and thank you, Julian, for bringing that up. I think access and bringing youth into this space is really important. I know for me growing up, I always felt weird in museum spaces, and I still feel weird in museum spaces. Um, I feel like I don't belong in museum spaces. Um, so having this here is something that's really important, but one of the things I wanted to talk about was a lot of the community that we work with um, couldn't afford to come here today, right? They couldn't afford to pay 70 or $90 to come sit down and have a boxed lunch and listen. When in reality, they're the activists, right? They're the activists every single day who are being active activists for their mental health, for their well-being, for their health, for their community. And all these empty chairs is where community could be. And they're not here today. And so for me, never being welcomed into museum spaces, this is a great opportunity to welcome them into these museum spaces and to reduce the barriers for people to be able to gather information, be around like-minded people, to get inspired and to learn. So I think we really need to take a lesson from this instance today and reduce those barriers so all people can attend these, these gatherings. <laughs> I think she read my mind. <laughs> I've been thinking about it, I'm sorry yeah, I've been thinking about you it. You definitely read my mind. Would you like to say something, Halia? Yeah. I, I just wanted to say something I forgot to mention in my talk. They never put in our contract that they were going to charge. Mm -hmm. Never. Because if they put it in a contract, I would I would have not done it. Same. Uh, and and the other thing is that I didn't uh, forgot to tell you is that I kept on marking a lot of things out of that contract and sitting at that. Then they sent it back to me. So what did I do? I said, no, take this out, take this out. Anybody who signed that contract, the way they presented it to you, you gave them a bunch of rights. Mm -hmm. And what is the name of this symposium? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So again, we were misled on paper. Mm -hmm. And it's a way to right these wrongs, right? It's about dialogue. It's about it's about discussing it and learning how to be better allies with Native people, um, where historically museums have not been allies to Native people. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to sit up here and to talk about those things. So thank you of of how how museums can work with Native people in a way that's that's honest and true and empowering. And in addition to that, I just want to acknowledge um, the children of. Um, a man who we are all honoring today with 
um, his co-curatorship of the exhibit mm -hmm. and just acknowledge them as people who keep his memory alive and continue the things that he taught them and just how grateful we are to have um, Sage Lapina in our community and to be a, a warrior and a role model for us. I know I yeah. look to her for lots of things. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that too because there, there's definitely some learning to do. There's definitely some processes that some protocols some things that need to be done. All of those can be um, addressed with cultural consultants. Yes. <laughs> and um, just really reaching out to uh, more of the community um, to, to handle those things and to acknowledging those that carry on this, this work and this wisdom and the children and the, and the elders of the communities. So thank you, Dana, for opening that up, yeah. definitely. Um, and thank you, Halia, for also um, yeah. backing us up, for real. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I think the first time I went to a museum was with Halia. You yeah. know, I didn't go to museums as a kid. We didn't even get to go to restaurants. Uh, <laughs> I'm serious. I am yeah. so serious. I have three little wild brothers, and so I never got to experience a lot of stuff. Yeah, blame it on the <laughs> But, um... Halia took me to, it was a warehouse for a museum. There was lots of stuff there. It was very depressing. I got major anxiety. And when I get anxiety, I tend to act goofy. <laughs> and Halia had to tell me, decorum, decorum. And I had to look it up <laughs> and figure out what it was. But I think I was, you know, when I was 25. I, I still would like almost Googled that, right? Yeah. Now. I still don't know. And so I think that, you know, that's because I had never experienced those places, and those places are where we're put on display yeah. as relics of the past, right. right? Or as things that have been stolen from our communities. So it's a very hard place to be in, and we want to have more of a, um, have more sovereignty Absolutely. over those places and um, have more contribution to them rather than just being behind the glass, mm -hmm. right? So thank you. Thank you all for being here to witness this conversation as well. <laughs> no. So I don't actually want to end yet. Oh. <laughs> I just have what some like go? fun questions real quick to ask you guys. What artists inspire you? Jamie. Oh God. We don't, you can pass that. Okay, There's too many. Me. There's too many. So, uh, yeah, there's so many people. Oh it gosh. depends upon the day. It yeah. depends upon the hour <laughs> of the day. Yes. And uh, it all depends. Like, lately, though, I've been inspired by these uh, East Indians. Uh, and there's a woman. So one of the things, I wanted to find out what the future has to bring. And so the, uh, that meant kind of delving into the psychology of narcissism. What is it? I mean, That's I have cool. no idea what the heck That's narcissism cool. is, and, uh, and I'm not a narcissist. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, and so what you find out, so this narcissism is a, is a certifiable uh, mental health um, uh, clinical uh, uh, personality disorder. It's like borderline psychosis. And so we, we don't really have a very, if we're looking at the American story, it's kind of like bleak for the next couple of years, possibly, you know? And so I look at, uh, so I've been listening to these, this woman, her name is Radhika, and she's 
she's like a perfect antithesis. So on the one hand, we have the clinical, psychological, scientific, Western view of nar narcissism on this side. If I, and Lynn and I had gone through this uh, mindfulness training and, and um, you know, centering yourself and being in the moment and going through all this. But it's the Western American MIT model of mindfulness, which has no, it's all the spirituality has been removed from it. Hmm. And what's neat about Radhika is she will talk about the mindfulness, I mean the uh, narcissism from a psychological standpoint, and then she'll say, and then there's the chakras, and then there's all the power, it's energies of, of the universe that you have to also be balanced. So you're doing two, and so she's been really great, and that's led me into um, all of this sitar music, which is like every day, it's like every time of the, of the day, there's a different type of music that you do. Like in the morning, I want a, something that'll, that really gets me going. <laughs> and so, so do they in East, in East India. They, I mean, the sitar goes to town, you know. And as you go through, as you go through, then you want to be meditative at night. And it's like that too. So it's really neat. So I've been really inspired by this. It's really, and then listening to all of the old recordings from my tribe, mm. recorded back in the 1920s. And, uh, and earlier, and see the, these are these old timers, people, all my, my grandmother's grandparents era, and, uh, and they're all singing all these old songs, and I haven't listened to them since 1985, maybe. And so it's like listening to them again, and, and with new ears, you know, uh, like I'm, I sang all those songs. Mm -hmm. And, and they're my songs now. But now I'm going back and saying, wait, no, that's their song. Like un my, uncle, uh, my uncle Bernard Jerry singing all these songs that we use in our ceremonies now. And they've become the whole community sings these songs. Hmm. And now here he is, I'm hearing him again and all that scratchiness and everything. And it's like, you know, so that, those are the artists <coughs> that are, I guess, most important to me right now. Thank you. Um, I would say my favorite artists right now would be probably um, working with the community and the youth, to be completely honest, because that's my life. That's what I do every day. But, um, and I think art takes various forms from, you know, they help us. We're actually opening up a native youth space in South Sacramento next year. So they're helping us with the plans for that, what it looks like, um, what's going to go inside of it. Um, and that's art to me, right? It's creating a space, and that's beautiful. And, you know, they create, they create art every day when we're with them and uh, figuring plans out to reduce suicide rates, to reduce mental health. Um, that is beautiful and it's empowering and it's inspiring and working with Julie and working with the community and seeing, seeing people for the first time beat a drum, for the first time singing a song. Um, that's what inspires me. Thank you. My favorite artist right now, besides Janet Jackson, because that never goes away. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to say that. <laughs> is my son, and his name is Emilano, and it means ocean in Esalen. So he's the first child to be born with an Esalen name in, I don't know, cool. 150, 200 years. It's been a while. But I love how like he can pick up any stick and start singing and clapping that stick. 
you know, and he doesn't have anybody to teach him that other than what I can show him. And he just does it. It's just natural. It just came to him. He hears music. He dances, right? And so it just reminds me of how much we need to enjoy life um, and enjoy those people who help create the art of our everyday. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, ni masian el pasaleki. My heart and my soul feels good to be partners with you guys up here. Um, you know, it feels good to be asked to come to a space like this to talk about these things. And it also feels good to be in front of a lot of people who I admire to talk about these things. And so with that, I think we're good. we're excited about is that we're going to invite the panelists who have um, participated earlier today up to the stage um, and you have sort of a free flow um, opportunity to ask everyone some questions that I know you've been sitting on all day and so if you give us a moment we have um, our ushers are going to bring out chairs um, for the panelists so Jolie and Asita please join us <laughs> Move back. Stretching. Yeah. <laughs> no. I gotta fix my mic though, because it's gonna drop to the floor. <laughs> Hold on. I like go get halfway undressed over here. <laughs> I'm just fixing my mic. I know. Right, big time. Metal. Big time. <laughs> I'm good. Thank you. So this is the first time we've ever had sort of a roundtable discussion. Um, so we're not um, rigid in the format. And what we're going to do is... There's an interesting mic setup where we only have a certain number of sort of like um, outlets. And so what we're gonna do is we have a mic for the audience. So if you raise your hand, if you have a question, um, Andrea will bring you a mic so that we can all hear the question. And then we're also um, going to work with our panelists. Um, we may end up having to have a panelist come to the podium to answer a question in case that uh, we don't have mics for everyone up here, for those of the people who are not. Um, lapelled. So, who's been sitting on a wonderful, wonderful question? Please stand up. I would love that. Thank you. So the question is, what can we do to children who are non-native? <laughs> and Melissa's ready and chomping on the bit. Go ahead. I go to classrooms all the time to do presentations. Um, oh, I forgot. I don't know if I can. Yeah. Is it working? Yeah, it should work. Uh, 
Devar? I think give them one second, they're going to turn it up. But your voice is wonderful, Melissa. Go ahead. <laughs> anyway, I go to classrooms all the time. Um, teachers ask me to come to classrooms and do presentations. There are amazing curriculums out there. I can share them with you. But Crocker actually asked me to do a curriculum um, for a training for teachers for the exhibit. So I'm working on that as well right now. Um, so that's just a simple answer for right this minute. But there's also some legislation going on for ethnic studies curriculum. Um, so supporting that would be amazing, so that you get that curriculum in your classroom, you get those resources. Um, we can provide you lists of books to read and films to watch, anything that you need in that area. Myself as well as I'm sure everyone else on this panel can offer that too. Yeah. This This past Tuesday, we did um, a national teach-in. So if you go to teachrock.com, teachrock.com, this is an organization, a foundation that Stevie Van Zant from Bruce Springsteen's band has put together to bring arts and music back in uh, the public schools, and to all schools, actually. And we did curriculum that's associated with the Rumble documentary. It's already done. There are video clips. You don't go out. You don't go through YouTube. It's perfectly done um, for everyone, especially non-native teachers. And it's K through 12 curriculum. I'm actually teaching a college-level course that's called Rumble American Indians Who Influence Rock and Roll. But there's a lot of curriculum floating out there. Not all of it is good. And this is um, standards-based. We actually partnered with NIEA, NEA. Um, behind the music, the Rock and Roll Forever Foundation. So it's, it's challenging for teachers to find good curriculum. Um, there are a couple of good websites to look at. The uh, National Museum of the American Indian has the 360 curriculum, which is great. Um, the museum that I had mentioned earlier that I'm on the board with, um, we have developed seven essential understandings for the state of California that you look at those seven essential understandings and then you do place-based learning. So that place-based learning should be, wherever your school is located, should be focused on the tribes of that region. Very specific. So it's, it's a really difficult thing to do a one-size-fits-all. And a note about the ethnic studies curriculum. The ethnic studies curriculum that was written for the CSU originally did not include American Indians. So we made sure that it did, and we, add the, we added the comma and the word American Indians. <laughs> Um, you know, I wish there would have been a larger discussion because honestly, it would have been lovely for the conversation to have started to say, what is it that we want people to learn in the state of California? And honestly, California Indian history and California Indian sovereignty would have been on the top of my list and then we can um, expand from there. So I'm glad that it's more inclusive now and, and, you know, I want everyone to um, really rally behind the diversity and inclusion. But at the same time, let's make sure that we don't marginalize our California Indian populations in that effort. But as for teachers, NMAI, the California Museum and Cultural Center has teacher resources and curriculum already written for you that is a good, useful guide. local tribes first, have an on, uh, how would I 
say a listing of the local tribes near where your school is located and invite a living artist. There are a lot of things that you can learn from the books, but it's uh, more experience-wise for the students to learn to see an actual person talk about it, demonstrate it, and to have that knowledge being given to the students around you. Because coming from a clay family, that's why my great-grandmother based her knowledge on clay work, is that she went to school, she taught, invited teachers and you know the students would come young children maybe they were three four five years old and those same students are coming back years later to see her and then that's how you know communication and about the art of pottery became an active uh, teaching tool for a lot of the uh, bureau of indian affairs school is that you know invite a living artist a Native American Indian artist. We do have local Indians in the same school districts, many across the United States. Invite them and know about them first before you venture out you know, to other states. Know your Indian art and make it possible for that art to be studied in school. I'm gonna just give more information. So if you're in Sacramento, you're close, no, for you. Uh, oh. Yeah, okay, message me and I'll send you the right people to talk to. I work at Rock and Sierra College. Yeah, but if you're in Sacramento, Wilton Rancheria, most of the um, uh, school districts have Indian education programs with native people who are running those programs and they have resources for you as well. Thank you, panelists. Does anyone else have a question? Yes, please stand up and let me just have her bring you a microphone. We have one that works, but stand up and shoot. I can project. Go ahead. Is that projected enough? Yeah. That's great. Thank you. So in today's conversation, I've been hearing a lot of words like healing arts and impact on communities. Um, speaking as an artist to other Native artists, when it comes to your artistic practice processes um, and your personal artistic expression, do you ever feel burdened or policed by the broader No. <laughs> no, I, for myself, I don't know, maybe I'm lucky, I, I don't, I do what I want, and it's, and it's worked. I've never felt pressure for anything, really. I get to do what I love every single day, I mean, that's amazing. And I get to support my family on it. I, it's, I, I'm just lucky, I guess. Are these working? Okay. So I feel that people ask me questions about Native American history, which I try to touch on in my work, but 
there is pressure. They expect me to know everything. And there's another side to like educating children about Native American history. There are people like me who have, well, I, I, my father was an alcoholic. My grandfather was an alcoholic and another grandma. And we were relocated and trying to make ends meet. You lose touch with all that information, all that beautiful culture. And I'm trying to learn as much as I can, but it, it does feel like pressure when I'm showing work or even other Native American people ask me and they're like, that doesn't quite fit with the Native American you're trying to talk about. But I think I, I leave myself open because I, I don't want to police myself. Otherwise, I get really nervous about making anything and it, it, sometimes it kind of creates a block. So I just try to let it go and just do what I can. How? How I have overcome that is that I do not accept commissions because that kind of puts a limit on what kind of design they might want on you, uh, from you and how they want it. Their conception might not be yours. So that's my way of uh, dealing with that. I'd like to address that. Thank you for that. Um, as a film producer, um, I look at it as suppression of arts. And that's why you have this, this new generation and a new, new um, expression of young artists taking that space. And um, you know, we've had to create, as Julie has done, you've had to create a space for more film festivals. One was not enough. Two is not enough. You know, we need something in every city, in every community. We need spaces for that. You know, we we need um, a visual sovereignty symposium. You know, maybe every month, in terms of as a monthly series, in terms of looking at the rich histories in in this Sacramento area, and what are the individual artists that that can have this space and teach us. So I look at it as suppression, and because of that, you have then this this expression that we have with the artists of that need to create. And I just I just think that's that's what uh, prompted uh, On Native Ground to produce and do student-produced films. I think that, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the problems, too, with, um, with that pressure outside or, you know, can you do this, can you do that, uh, perform, it, it depends upon the art form, you know, too. So in performance art, so we did a series of all these performances and they were super labor intensive. We wanted all native people in all aspects of the production. So we might have like anywhere from 10 to say 20 at the most. Uh, actors, all the people on the stage, behind the stage. So we might have 20 plus people and then we'd have to feed them. Well, you know, they really want us to um, do this Come on, this is this is the greatest thing, and the pressure comes what from the the theaters, you know, non-Indian run, uh, to the community that just says, oh, everybody just loves this. You just got to do more and more and more, and at a certain point, you just have to pull the plug and say, you know, we we're feeding them, you know, we're doing all this stuff, and so. We want this to happen. It's promoting our language. It's promoting our culture. It's promoting all of the beauty that we have to offer to the world. And you know, we're just you know, we're just going under financially because of the demand was greater than 
I mean, it was almost like Indian stuff should be free. Indian knowledge should be free. Uh, Indian uh, wisdom should be free. Indian uh, love should be free. You know, all of this stuff is free. And it's not, you know, we, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, the same bill at the end of the month you know, that you receive, we, we receive too. But there is a lot of pressure to, um, when something resonates and is so beautiful, you want so you want it more and more and more, but you're not willing to pay for it. Or if you are, again, like the commission. That's uh, I'm thinking of my wife back there. She, you know, she, she's even been trained to market her artwork and do all these different things. You know, her work should be going for you know two plus thousand dollars per piece. $3,000 or whatever, and yet, you know, she wants the community to own it because that's where the healing happens, it's within our community. So, and again, she reaches the same, um, the same uh, conclusion, no more commissions. I mean, it's just, you know, deadlines and this and that, and it's like, it just totally messes with your whole family or even your art production and all of that is gets messed up once you start other people are in control Bad. Bad. <laughs> do we have another question yes thank you thank you all uh, i'm glad the question about the pricing came up because it concerned me as exclusive when the, for this event, which is understandable for the level of the day, and also the Crocker has done so much to be inclusive in recent years and make that a big, big thing. Um, so the more, I know there are many people who are interested in this that weren't able to be here at the empty shows that I mentioned. And my question is, regarding the new museum, the state or the cultural, uh, cultural center that the governor approved funding for this year. Um, I had the privilege of working at the California Indian Museum for three years and getting to know the people in our region and in our state and have visitors from all over the world who came in and were there's a lot of people really from other countries, they come to Sacramento to go to that museum, which people here don't even know is there. Oh, I drive by it all the time. And they, every culture from all over the planet had symbolism and technology, as a Danish uh, curator kept saying to me, asking them if the bows were double singing or not. Um, Africa, Hawaii, Philippines, Korea, the imagery and the way of life is common to indigenous peoples all over the world. So that really interests me personally and the potential for this new museum. So my question is, I know that there are some, some healing needs to be done in the whole process of how the museum has been stalled out for some time. Does anyone want to comment on the tribal view of potential for that site and how how the, the relationship with the state may need to be improved. Do you want 
Jolie. No. Well, maybe if I could start the state perspective, yeah. and then, um, so if, if you're not familiar with the California Indian Heritage Foundation, which has been um, funded by Governor um, uh, Brown before he left office, he he passed um, in an executive order for, to pay $100 million for the acquisition of the land at the confluence of the Sacramento and the American um, River, and it was to be a museum, a statewide museum honoring California Native heritage, and the um, the California um, Parks Department of Parks and Recreation is is creating the uh, working with the tribal advisor for Governor Newsom, uh, Ms. Christina Snyder, developing cultural advisory committees, technical review committees in terms of what is going to look like for the California tribal people. So it's very much in the early stages. And hopefully, um, as I think, Julie, you mentioned it earlier, Executive Order in 1519, which is the Truth and Healing Council, that it would be in combination with that. So that is yet to be, to be done. And so now the tribal perspective as California tribes, since this is going to be your museum, I'll pass that on. I will um, just <laughs> add to that. <laughs> My little two cents would please, you know. But I know I had a recent meeting with the um, person who's coordinating um, the sort of pre-planning for that effort, and they're still accepting um, people on their advisory committee or to be nominated. And I think we all know you have to be in it to win it. Um, people have said that. And so I want to encourage everybody to reach out and apply um, to be part of that conversation so that you're not you know, waiting to hear what they're doing, but really shaping that. And so they had to extend the deadline for that participation. So just to let you know, I do know that. 